This episode is sponsored by Harvest. I used Harvest to track time, track subcontractors' time, and invoice clients. Their time tracking is really simple and easy to use. Invoicing includes a PayNow function by credit card and PayPal, and you can sign up at getharvest.com. Use the code RF to get 50% off your first month. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, it looks like Evan is traveling and Jeff had some other family commitments. So it's just going to be the two of us this week. Nice and cozy. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So um, this week we're going to talk about um, organizing and archiving client materials. And there's actually a question on the user voice where uh, they're asking about what we do with some of these things. So um, should we just jump in and get started? Yeah, I mean, I think the question's really good because went through a lot of different things, both, you know, the development side and the business side. So we can actually just kind of pick through and talk about what we do and, you know, what we really should do because both of us aren't perfect on this, I bet. I know. I, I should get something out to take notes. <laughs> I guess we're recording this, right? Yeah, I'll just play back later. Yeah. Yeah, I should open up OmniFocus and just do it that way. Anyway, um, so let's just start at the top um, just because some of these are really quick and, uh, you know, generally, you know, I think we can get through some of them pretty fast. So um, the first one is the contract or contract agreement. So uh, what I do is I, I just, I, I usually have, I use PDF pen and I just have a, a copy of my signature and I pretty much just paste it in. And so I just save a, a PDF copy of the, the contract. I should probably be putting it in Dropbox or something so that I don't lose it. Um, but I do have a backup of my machine. Uh, I actually have several backups of my, my machine and maybe we can talk about that in a minute, but yeah, I'm, I'm not too worried about losing it, but yeah, it'd probably be nice to have in multiple places. Yeah. And for me, so I have basically on my laptop, I have three main folders in my user directory. I have temp, which is where downloads and temporary stuff goes. I have dev, which is all my development projects are there and I have doc, um, Dev and Doc are Git repositories, and so I'll, I'll check stuff in to Git, and then those get pushed up to a server. Um, inside a Doc, I have yet another Git repository for my business documents, mm-hmm. and typically I write the contract, and so I have a template I use. So it's in OpenOffice, um, like you. I just put in my sign a digital signature, and I save. I have the OpenOffice. Uh, file, I save it and print it to a PDF that I send to the client. Then when I get the actual copy back from the client and and it's signed with both of us, um, I put that in there too. So I have the original that I can edit. I have what I sent the client and what I got back. Um, Sometimes I'll only get back like the signature page from a client or sometimes they'll mail me a paper copy. And if that's the case, I'll just scan in the paper copy and put it in that same folder. And so I have, it's in Git and it gets sent to a remote server and then I also have a backup script that actually puts it onto another hard drive and then from there it sends it to Amazon S3. So most of my stuff like client stuff or contract stuff is like in at least two sometimes five or six places. Right and see where I'm at I've got uh, as far as keeping different copies goes um, well let me back up so you mentioned that you have like a template contract that you send to them and I've been using the new leaders one that we've mentioned a couple of times that, that Evan also also uses and it basically says if you send a deposit you've agreed to the contract um, and I've actually run it through by an attorney and he said that that is fine and legally binding 
So I usually don't have um, beyond just a copy of the agreement that I've, you know, changed the names on for them. I don't have to collect a, a signature or anything. Um, but, uh, yeah, as far as having different copies in different places, I did mention, I do have a backup strategy. Um, I have an external drive that's connected to my machine that I'm running time machine on. And, um, I've gotten one that's big enough for me to actually keep about a month's worth of backup copies on there. And so the thing I like about time machine is it's fast for like rolling stuff back. And so, um, if it's been in there within the last month, I've probably got it on, on time machine and then i'm i've also got a paid account with mosey mosey.com and uh so i'm backing up to mosey as well and i just back up everything so um if if push comes to shove if something terrible happens you know i can i can get the stuff back from there and i i also have a lot of stuff in dropbox and and we'll probably down the line talk about some of the things that i keep in dropbox so yeah and i mean realistically like even even if you don't get a signed contract back, if there was like a legal problem, I'm pretty sure since you sent the contract over email and there's an email record for that, and if they send a contract back or even if there's a check deposited in your account, you know, a couple of days later, it's you can kind of show proof that, yeah, this is here's the chain of trust or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's a paper trail. Well, not exactly paper, but you know, exactly. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't print uh, hard copies or anything of the contracts. Um, I do sometimes get agreements from like sponsors of podcasts and things like that. And, and so then, you know, I have to digitally sign those and then that's how I handle all of those. So um, the next one listed here is scope change decisions. And, and for me, that feels more like a project management thing. I mean, unless you're de- yeah. dealing with a fixed bid where you've got a scope of work and they want to change it. I don't, I don't know that there's really a document to keep track of. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I've done some fixed stuff where we've had to like formally write up a, an addendum to the contract saying we're adding hours, we're adding budget for it. Um, here's the changes we expect to get done, that sort of thing. And it's, I, I do it exactly as my contracts. I basically say like, you know, addendum to contract on this date and save it in the same folder. Yeah. And then, like you said, like with hourly stuff, and it's kind of just manage it in the project. And most of the project management stuff I do has email tracking. So I have emails to kind of, you know, a paper trail if there's a problem, but that's usually not a problem at all. Right. Yeah. Same here. And I've been using Pivotal Tracker and you can see the history on any of the stories that are in there. So you can see what the changes were to the story. And then um, it'll also show you who approved it and stuff like that. So um, you, you get a nice trail there and I, I really don't worry about it. I, I haven't taken any fixed bids, so I haven't had to do any addenda to any contracts. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're simple. Like it's maybe a one or two page thing, like what's changing and that's all it is. And just signed off by people. Yep. So going down the list, the, the next thing is uh, design config decisions. So you found XYZ conflicted with ABC, had to go with XYZZY. I mean, any of that, I just email the client and tell them, you know, that we, we had this, we need to do this. Um, they won't play nicely together. Here's how we're going to fix it. It's going to add this much time. Yeah, I mean, same here. I mean, most of the time I put it in the project management system. Um, a few times, if it's very like low level-y, I'll put it in like the git commit log. Uh-huh. Um, like, you know, I had to upgrade this version of the library because of, you know, it conflicted. But yeah, I mean, there's not much really, most of the, like these kind of decisions, like, you know, hour by hour decisions, you don't need to really track and organize. Once they're made, most people don't care to look back at them. So it's not as big of a deal as like an actual contract where, you know, a year down the line, someone can get sued about it. 
Right. Yeah. The only thing that I see there is if you can, you find something there that will require another addenda to the contract, another addendum. But um, I I think those are even pretty rare that you're going to find something in there that, you know, you're going to have to cover with the contract. Usually the contract is more about results than about uh, design or config or specifics like that anyway. So the next thing in here is source code. So uh, what, what do you use for source code? All my source code stored on a Windows share. That's a joke. No, um, <laughs> I was I was trying to decide if I could laugh or not. Yeah, no, it's like I said. Is I have most of my code. Um, there's like I have like a, a master Git repository that uses submodules for a lot of it. But on a full project, I'll have a, a, its own Git repository for it. Um, I put everything on my own server. Um, I have Git hosts, I think, running on it. Um, some of the open source stuff I put on GitHub too as a mirrored copy. And then some clients, they have their own repository. So I end up pushing to like two or three places. And I do this because I started working with Git back when GitHub would go down a lot and would actually cause deployments to fail because GitHub's offline. So at that time, I was like, oh, I have Git. I'll just push it to multiple places. So basically, whenever I deploy, it usually comes from the client's repository or my private one, um, unless it's like completely open source plugin they're using without any changes. They'll use like the GitHub version. Um, and then, yeah. Do you do you keep? Uh, oh, just no. You covered that private repository. So, yeah, so do I've, you ever worry about like code ownership if it's on their account? Um, for the most part, no. I would say my recent work has all been stipulated in my contract that I own it and I'm releasing it to them under GPL v2, which is because I'm modifying a GPL system. And so therefore anything I do has to be GPL. And so technically I keep the copyright and I'm licensing it to the client. Um, they don't care. They, they just want the software to work. So it's not a big deal. But once again, I do a lot of internal systems. I don't do a lot of the public facing systems. Right. Yeah. As as far as what I do, I just manage everything on GitHub. Um, That's primarily because I haven't had the inclination to go set up my own Git server. Um, I've done it before. I've set up Git on um, actually several different systems for different employers that I've had before I went freelance, but it's just not... it wouldn't solve enough pain for me to actually go and do it. I'd rather just pay GitHub 10 bucks a month or whatever to to manage it for me. Um, Yeah. And I mean, it also depends on what you're doing. Like for me, I have uh, probably over a hundred open source plugins now. And so having those times, you know, I probably have a couple of clients that have their own copy of almost every one of those. So we're talking about, you know, upwards of 200 private repositories. That's, really, really cost prohibitive for GitHub. Right. And so it's, I've kind of like, okay, I can set up a, you know, an SSH and Git repository really quickly and really easily. And that's cheaper and it works good enough. And then by having a backup copy on my server, we're protected that way. But, you know, once again, like it's different situations. I work on a lot of small projects. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I just, yeah, I, I prefer the commercial service now. Um, depending on the client, I've had them set it up in different ways. So um, some clients uh, have set up their own, um, what is it, organization in GitHub. And then they set up the repositories under that and I don't worry about it. Or they'll just get their own one-off um, GitHub account and then they'll host their stuff there, pay for private repositories and just manage it that way. Um, in In my case... Um, I also have an organization for my own business 
And then, you know, some of the stuff that I'm working on, um, I may have it in a personal private repository. I need to just move them all one way or the other, but I haven't. Um, it, it has worked out in my favor to actually own the repository as well as the code because my contract also stipulates I own the code and I license, I license it to you uh, with a non-exclusive, you know, whatever, whatever license. I don't remember the exact wording, but basically it just says, look, you can use this and, you know, you, you can also, you know, sell it to other people and whatever, you know, you can treat it like you own it basically. Um, but, uh, you know, it's only the code that they've paid for. And in one case I had a client that didn't pay me for about half the work on their project. And the fact that I own the repository, um, meant that I could just cut them off. And so I have collateral in, in the code in half of their application, um, that, that I can hold over them until they pay me, which I'm not really convinced they're ever going to do, but, uh, then they're never going to get the code either. Um, and, and that's just part of the deal. But, um, I would dare say that most of my clients have been totally willing to just go and set up their own Git accounts and then just manage it that way. So, but I, I have done it both ways. I don't really, I don't really mind hosting the private, um, repositories for them. Um, as long as they are my client. And then, um, w- once the contract ends, then I start pressuring them to, set up a Git account so that I can transfer ownership so that I don't have to um, have that counting against the quota that I have for uh, private repositories on GitHub. So Yeah, and I mean, I've also looked at Bitbucket before. Um, I think they start out as Mercurial, but they do Git also. And I'm looking at it, you can get unlimited public and private repositories. Um, you're only charged, I think, based on the user's amount. And right. so... I'm, I'm, I actually have an account I haven't used. I'm considering using them as my mirror. So, you know, if GitHub goes down, I can put stuff over here type thing. And because with Git, it's very easy to do that. And you can configure your push so you can push to multiple places with a couple of commands. This might be a, this might be a better thing for me than actually having my own server and maintaining it all there. Cause that is, it is kind of a headache to do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We had an in-house server when I was working for, um, crimereports.com and, uh, I was the guy that was maintaining it. Um, I don't remember why the IT guys didn't want to deal with it, but they didn't. So, I think it was just that they didn't want to be experts in managing a, a system uh, anyway. It was different from all the other systems they were using. Um, and so, yeah, so I wound up managing it. And for the most part, it was fine. But if you ever had to, like, change anything or if updates changed something in particular that made it break, then it was it was a real headache. So, yeah, anyway. Um, but, yeah, other than that, um, that, that's pretty much how I handle source control. Or source code. Um, I have used other systems too, like Assembla. And I think they were Subversion for a long time. I don't know if they have Git uh, built, baked into their stuff or whatever. But they have a lot of nice tools around the project management stuff too. And I, I remember that working out pretty well. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of like what I talked about in a past episode. Like, be flexible. And I mean, if your client says, we need you to use it this way, that's pretty much what you're going to want to do um, as long as it's not using a window share you know have a certain baseline level of standard of you need to use git or mercurial or something like that and i need to be able to access it from home i mean i know i know a story of one guy who actually had to drive i think it was two hours to get into the company firewall in order to do his work like they wouldn't even let him get code out of it <laughs> that's crazy and he was a freelancer too wow yeah, I'm I'm pretty uh, inflexible that way. In fact, I have an email when I get an email from uh, 
recruiters or, you know, people looking to hire me and it always says something to the effect of, you know, if it's not a contract and I can't work it from home, then, you know, don't bother. So, but yeah, that, that's, that's really kind of a headache. Anyway, um, is there anything else you want to cover with source, uh, source code, source control? Um, I guess the only other thing is, I guess when you're done with it. So I had a couple projects where I was using subversion, like this was before Git. Um, what I ended up doing when the project was wrapped up, and this was like a year later, maybe two years later, I used Subversion and actually exported it. So it's like a, a dump of the repository. Um, it's the same thing as like a Git clone would give you. Um, took that and actually zipped it up and put it onto my local backup server here. So I, I don't think it's ever going to happen, but if that client comes back to me, you know, this would be, I guess, five years now. And if they say, hey, do you happen to have a copy of that code? I still have it lying around, you know, taking it maybe 50 megs of space. Right. Um, with Git, it's not as big of a deal because you have a full copy of the code. You can kind of, you can kind of slim it down and stuff. But that's, that's another thing is like, you need to kind of get rid of your code over time. Otherwise, you're just going to, like my dev directory is just growing. It's a couple hundred directories inside of there that I have to kind of, pick through now. Yeah, I've seen that with my own projects. You know, I, I've only been freelance for a couple of years here and um, most of my contracts have been relatively long term. And so I don't have a bazillion little directories for little projects that I've done, but it, it is still a growing thing. I just haven't had to weed the garden yet, I guess, at least to get space. But Yeah, I mean, I tweeted about it this this week. My laptop has basically been running out of space for about a month now and finally upgraded the hard drive a little bit. But I mean, it's the kind of thing like it says, get checkout failed, not enough disk space. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a problem. All right. So what about databases? Um, so, you know, if you have test data or you have a copy of the production data on your system, you know, how, how do you how do you manage that? So I'm not that good with this. Um, most of the stuff I work on is Chili Project. And so I have one checkout of Chili Project and then different branches. And so in a directory in there, I have a folder called data and then it's kind of separated by client and I have their data dumps or if they have test data, I have their test data dumps in there. Um, and then each client has their own database, you know, whether it's MySQL or uh, Postgres. And I have a heavily, heavily edit edited database.yaml. And so I can just switch a couple, like maybe one line, and it will change it from Postgres for client A to MySQL for client B, We're testing bug X. And so basically all the client data is stored in my databases. And then once again, like when my laptop runs out of space, I have to pick through and like, okay, this bug was already resolved. I can dump this database. I don't need it. Um, most of the time, the data, like, for one client is identical and I have like 10 copies of it, but they're varying a little bit based on when I got it or if I'm testing a specific bug or doing a new feature site that had a bunch of tables. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I drop the tables as I need them and then I'll go through that data directory and clean out really old stuff. But that's kind of like, uh, I'm out of space. What do I, what can I get rid of? Right. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's kind of the same thing as far as, um, you know, weeding out client projects that I'm no longer working on. I, I really don't tend to do it. So typically what will happen is I'll move to a new machine and I just don't set anything up or migrate any data. 
um, until I actually need it. Um, I have had to get like production copies, of the production database and things like that. And I'll just get a, an SQL dump and then, you know, dump it into my database and stuff. But, you know, like I said before, I, yeah, I really only do that when I have to, um, as far as test data goes, typically I just have it in my seeds file in rails. And it's a pretty small set, so it's not something that I really worry about. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to say is this is where I fail a lot of is I'm using a lot of production data for clients because most of the bugs are data-related bugs. It's not actually like application code. And so I have to use production data. I can't use C data or uh, fake data or anything like that. And that's where it's kind of kind of a problem because it's the idea if my laptop gets stolen, my client data is now in the open. But right. To kind of work around that my entire laptop is encrypted, the hard drives has an encryption on it, but still it's like that's only one layer there and that's what I want to kind of try to work on, you know, I guess this next year is actually if I get production data down, run it through a script that kind of sanitizes it and strips out stuff and then use that as my test data for them um, and not actually like the real, you know, hardcore production data. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I, in fact, I kind of like that idea. Just have some something that'll sanitize the data either um, in the dump or in the database and you can decide which level you're at. And that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about that, but most of the development I do isn't on a laptop. So, I mean, unless somebody breaks into my house, they're not going to be stealing the machine that I'm doing most of my development on. So I, I don't worry about that nearly as much, though I do work on a Mac. And so I can always remote wipe my computer or somebody else can remote wipe my computer as, as you may have heard uh, yeah you you mentioned that before the show that the who was it it was it was a tech journalist matt something i think yeah i don't remember the name but yeah that i mean that stuff happens quite a bit i mean this was a pretty public one but stuff gets leaked a lot and I mean, I'm getting more and more paranoid throughout the years. And so that's why I like my laptops encrypted. And it actually is kind of a hassle for me to develop on certain things because of the encryption. You know, I'm looking now at like, okay, I need to sanitize data and I need to stop keeping as much data on here and start clearing it off. And it's just heightened levels of security. You know, it's like threat level orange right now. Yep. Yeah, it was Matt Honan and he, he actually posts them on Wired. We'll put a a link in the show notes about it, but yeah. Yeah. What would, what would you do if somebody wiped your, uh, your laptop? I guess you have a backup drive and you're backing stuff up to there and S3. Yeah. I mean, if, if someone wiped my laptop, it would suck, but it wouldn't really be a big deal. Cause I have, I have a hard drive with a backup. I have it backed up in S3 and it's incremental and full and all of, all of those backups are encrypted also. Um, and a lot of my, because I'm using Linux, a lot of the install Ruby, install this, install that, I have automated. So I don't have it completely ready because I don't set up new systems that much. But it's the thing of I can order a new laptop and then run a couple of commands and probably a couple hours of downloading, you know, automated downloading the laptops back to where it was. Yeah. So it's not really that big of a deal for me. Um, I'm more worried about like leaking client data because that's, that's just, you know, a massive fail, massive suck as a business. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, yeah, just be aware of it. I, I wonder if, if there are any tools out there for sanitizing data and databases and stuff. If there's a good way to do that. I mean, I want to say ThoughtBot did a post on something like this. I think they're using like Faker or the random data gym. But I mean, it's very application specific because you have to like iterate over, you know, all the, all the columns, all the data uh, tables, and you have to know like what what should go in this field, what should go in this field. But I mean, it's 
it's not really that hard. It's just a matter of sitting down and figuring that out. Like for you, I think it'd be harder because you work on different projects. But for me, it's like 90% of my stuff's using the same database schema. So I can right. just write it once and be done. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for me, it would it would be a little more involved. Um, but even then, I think you could probably do a general um, sanitizer app of some kind that even just went in and uh, basically... Um, looked through all the tables and said, um, this format, this format in this column looks like a credit card. Is it a credit card? And do I need to clean it up? You know, and why are you storing a credit card? In the yeah. Database? Yeah. But you know, but you yeah. could do the same thing with phone numbers, addresses, names, email addresses. I mean, anything like that, you know, you could say this looks like, uh, you know, you named it first underscore name. Is this a first name? And is this something that we need to monkey with? You know? Yeah. And that's something, I mean, you could do it where it just throws a string into fill the column, you know, so 255 or whatever. And if it has like the common names you would use and it can use a more specialized data. And I mean, yeah. like I said, the faker gym and then the random data gym, both of those produce really good data. I actually use those for performance testing, you know, load in 100,000, a million records and see what the app does. So it's just a matter of sitting down and actually writing that kind of sanitizer. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Or even just a Rails plugin, uh, you know, and then maybe you can, when you run the rake task, then it can suggest fields or, you know, you can specify the fields in some YAML file or something. But anyway, uh, I think we're getting a little off topic here. Um, so the next thing listed here is notes on the client's environment, such as servers, login info, important directories, where to find things, stuff like that. Um, a lot of that, because most of my clients use Chili Project or they use My Chili Project, and both of those come with a wiki. So a lot of that stuff we put in a wiki. Um, login information and stuff like that, I actually um, use if you, in the .ssh slash config in like your home directory, you can put in like custom aliases. And so I'll put in like to log into server X you know, I call it as the client name instead of, you know, 123.gateway.rackspace.com or whatever. Um, and then I can put in a custom port, a username, all that. Um, and then I can I can SSH in and then I'll use like a an SSH, SSH key to actually get in without a password. So most of the authentication stuff I don't have to worry about. And then as far as like important stuff on the server, um, in Etsy, there's a MOTD, which is message of the day file. Um, some versions, some systems do it differently, but whatever you put in there is pretty much shown on the screen when you log in, like welcome to Ubuntu. So what I've done is I put in like, hey, the Rails app for this domain is installed at this place. Please use this user to deploy. You can find the Git repo here, you know, kind of all that stuff that you're going to want to see right when you log in. Uh, especially if it's like, hey, we're using Ruby 1.9.3. We're only using Bundler, that sort of idea. Right. Yeah. I, I like that idea. Um, I generally will set up, I, I didn't realize that you could put that into the Git config and you know, that's kind of my fault, but, um, no, it's an SSH or the SSH. That's what I meant. The SSH config. And, uh, that, that sounds really, really handy. Um, and then as far as the MOTD again, you know, I just had never thought about using it that way. Um, and I, I really like the approach because then essentially what it is, is, you know, once you're in the machine, then, then you have your reminder, but all of the relevant information to the application is stored on the server where it's being hosted and you don't have to know it, remember it or worry about it until you're actually on the machine. Yeah. I mean, it's the idea of like, okay, you need to get on the server. What you need to know is what the server is and you can get that from the wiki or, 
in the SSH config, like if you stored it there, once you get on the server, then it says, okay, now that you're here, here's where you need to go to do your things. And you, another thing, people, I, I don't see this people using it that much, but you can use the doc folder of Rails and throw files in there, and you can actually have you know RDoc pick them up, and so you can say, okay, here's the Git URL when you clone when you clone this, run the RDocs and read through the RDocs, and that's all the project documentation. That's where our servers are. That's how we deploy, and it's all self-contained. And so if it ever changes, it gets checked in, and people can see the version is. Yeah, I've I've seen that kind of information in the um in the README or what have you. Um and yeah, you can always use our doc to put it into the doc folder. Um I, I hesitate a little bit depending on what the information is about putting I mean even just the username and server name on the you know out where people can see it I'd, I'd want that to be a little bit more protected than uh you know stored necessarily with the 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 code or anything and and with your ssh config setup do you ever worry about people getting their hands on that or i mean not really because the way i look at it is if if you put this stuff in the rails app if you have a, a capistrano deploy in there it has a username it has all that stuff in there anyways that's true um my SSH config, you can put the passwords into those, but I don't. I use SSH keys. Yeah. So I might have to talk to someone like in IT on the phone and say, okay, tell me what my password is. I use it for that one time just to copy my SSH key in, and from then on, I forget the password. Yeah, and you SSH know, keys are so the way to go. Yeah, and this is if you do SSH keys and go to a lot of servers, make one per client at the very least, if not one per project. That way, if it ever gets compromised or whatever, you can just junk it. Yep, yep, absolutely. So um, what about uh, client organization and processes, client info, who to tr- who's in charge of what, um, who can get you information on whatever uh, release processes? Uh, you kind of went first on the last one, so I'll jump in on this. Um, I use a CRM. I use Salesforce, um, and, and that, that helps with a lot of that. Um, another thing that really helps with some of this is... Uh, just having a uh, an overall chat, so either a room on Skype or you know um, an, an IM or IRC setup, so that you know everybody's in the same place and you can ask. Um, the other thing that really helps with a lot of these is a lot of the time you'll have some kind of uh, project manager with the client, and so you're really only dealing with one person unless there's something uh, specific. Um, and so in a lot of cases, you just ask them for what you need and then they'll get the right person in touch with you. Um, but if you are dealing with, you know, more than a handful of people and you need to keep it straight, then a CRM is a good way to go. And, and again, having that global chat room out there so that you can ask the person that you think handles that and then they can point you in the right direction if you're wrong. Yeah. And that's kind of what I do. Like I have a CRM, but I don't use it that much. It's basically just a big glorified address book for me. Um, I do a lot of stuff in email and most of my projects it's I have one maybe two points of contact for the PM and if I'm working with someone else it's you know we're working really closely together so I'm not going to forget who they are or what they're responsible for um, and as far as like release process and any kind of like development process I try to automate that as much as I can so I put it in Capistrano and I make it like the default task and I hook into the stuff there so you don't really need to write much of it down it's just run Capistrano um, kind of business processes that's if if the project needs that that's kind of where it goes in the wiki we'd you know write it up as a wiki page and then try to hook it in with either like a an issue or a task or something like if we have to do a release every month we'll make a task for it and link to the wiki page so we follow the process each time 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I agree with you, especially on the processes. If you can automate it, then you don't have to remember it. And, and I mean that in two ways. One is, is then the process is run the automated process runner. Um, and the other way is, is if I really do need to know what, what the process is, I can go look at the automation and see what the steps are. So if you have to explain it to somebody else, you can just say, look, this is how it does it. Yeah. And I mean, that's how a lot of this stuff starts out. It's like, I'll start it as like a, a wiki document of like, you know, bullet points of do this, then do this, then do this. And then it's slowly as the project needs more automation or more people come on, we'll kind of actually like, okay, let's break this out into a script. And then step one, instead of being, you know, a paragraph long turns into run this script. If it errors, talk to the PM. If it doesn't error, move to step two. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So the next question is, is do you set up VMs or separate environments for each project, especially if you had in a, had to load in a lot of libraries or tools that conflict with your regular environment? So I don't do this. I want to. Um, most of my stuff is working in Chile projects. So it's one or two versions of Ruby, the same base code. It might be a different branch for a different version. Um, but it's, you know, 80% the same stuff. Um, I've been playing a little bit of JavaScript and Node, and I've had an old version of Node, and then I needed a new version of Node, and then to use Ruby Jasmine, I needed a different version. And I've I've done enough DevOps that I've actually have scripts to you know set up a server and get it running, and you know either install Ruby or you know if I need Node on there, any of that stuff. And so I'm actually really considering. Um, for any non chili project projects I pick up to actually the first thing is set up a set up a clean VM where I dev on and then I can also use something like that to test the deployment script and deploy to a local VM get it working and then push it out to an actual you know VPS or dedicated server um, and I mean I think with what is it RVM and um, RB, ENV, and Bundler a lot of the library tool conflict is actually going away um, in fact, on my system now, my system Ruby only has Bundler installed, and then everything else is in like gem sets or different versions of Ruby. But before, it, it used to be really bad. I'd have to uninstall Rails, you know, gem by gem by gem, get to an older version, work on something, and then the next day for a different client, I have to reinstall the new version of Rails. And <laughs> that happened so many times. Like it was, it was pretty frustrating. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way. I generally don't use VMs at all. Um, on occasion, I'll have to test something because even even the deployments are usually pretty simple and the server setups are usually something that I put together. So I'm using the same tools either way. So I'm using, um, what is it? Fusion Passenger, Apache. I mean, you know, just, just basic stuff, memcache. Um, for caching um, and sessions and, and junk like that. Um, so it's it's usually pretty homogenous as far as the setup goes. And um, that being the case, you know, I, I really don't have to test anything. If if they have some kind of uh, custom setup that, that'll do that or something like that, then yeah, I'll go ahead and use Vagrant or something to, to set it up and then um, you know, run the VM from there and fiddle with it. But I mean, honestly, most of the time I don't bother with it. I just, uh, I just set things up and run and, you know, the same with Heroku. So, you know, you just set up the staging environment, make sure it looks like the production environment, and then you do your best. Um, yeah. And as far as libraries or tools that conflict, um, I'm with Eric on that one. I, I don't see it anymore because I'm using RVN, RVM and Bundler. Um, I don't even really use gem sets anymore. I mean, sometimes I do, uh, some of the older pro projects do it. 
um, because I've set up an RVMRC file in the folder for the um, for the the project, and so you know, commonly that that's what I'll have. I do like having the RVMRC um, in there basically because it's a way for me to communicate to any other developers. Um, this is the version that it's developed against, and this is the version of Ruby that's running on the server. But beyond that, I, I really don't worry about it or bother with it. So um, the last one, project status snapshot. So when you get a call for more work six months later, you remember what you were doing and the next step, what the next steps were. So I, is that is that like a, a note to yourself or some way of remembering where you were at with the project when they come back and say, we want more work done? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, hey, where where did you leave this project off? And, you know, has it advanced after you left or whatever? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think part of this is just in the way you manage the project. So hopefully you don't have like some half done work that's checked into master that you're going to have to figure out down the road. I mean, everything in master should be complete. Um, so worst case scenario, then you go look at the, the uh, story branch, you know, for whatever you were working on. And then you can just get up to speed on that. Um, and then as far as, uh, any of the other project status stuff goes, like I said, I've been using pivotal tracker, so I'll just go in and I'll archive the project. And then if, if I need to bring it back, then I will, I will unarchive the project. You know, I'll just, I'll just bring it back out. So, um, I, you know, that, that's, that's pretty much it. I, uh, unless there's something that, you know, I'm putting down and picking up the next day and I want to make a note to myself, this is where I'm at. I generally don't do this at all. Yeah, I'm trying to think back. I do this a bit more than I want to. Um, a lot of that is because not even when the project ends, but a lot of the a lot of the work I do is start and stop. So a client might say, "Hey, let's let's work on this prototype. See what we can get going for it." Um, and then halfway through it, they're like, "Hey, we need you to stop working on that and start working on something else." And so it's it's not it's not in master, but it's in you know, like you said, like a story branch, a you know, a working progress branch. Um, but I've had that happen where it sat there for like, I think like six months, maybe even 12 months. And so getting back to it, I'd actually have to go through the Git logs and reread the actual feature description and, you know, talk to the client and say like, okay, is this, this is still how we want it to work. Um, and that's just, I just, I don't take very good notes about where I leave off because I don't know like, okay, we're going to stop this on Friday. So it's time to start kind of writing down where I'm at and, you know, flag to do stuff. It's, don't have much, uh, much notice about it. Um, as far as like full projects, most of the time I'm the only developer on them. So if where I leave a project is pretty much where I'm going to pick it up and it's pretty easy. I mean, I go, when I try to finish a feature, it's like I wrap it up. Like I have the documentation and all that stuff in there. So I can go through the Git, see the last four or five commits, see how I finished it up and pretty much come back up to speed of like, this is where I was at with this. And usually the client might be using their project management system and there might be changes in that. So I stopped right now. And then since the time when I stopped to when I started up again, there might be 10 new features, but I just skim through those features, talk with them about it, maybe have a conference call and, you know, basically get up to speed that way. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. So are there any other, I, I don't know, any other document things or anything that we need to talk about? The only other thing I can think about is that I did mention that I was going to tell you how I use Dropbox in all of this. Um, the, the thing that I do most with Dropbox is, if there are any files as far as like design documents or um, that, that's pretty much it. So like mockups and stuff, 
um, I'll set up a Dropbox and I'll, I'll share a folder with the client and that way they can put stuff in there. They can update it. Um, and then they just let me know what the changes are in those files. And the nice thing about that too, is that I can share those folders with subcontractors and then they have everything that I have and I don't have to go and hunt through my email to find it and forward it and whatever. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a much better way of, of going for me. Um, you can do the same kind of thing with Evernote or something like that, but, uh, yeah, Dropbox is really the way that I, I handle that. Yeah. And I've, I've had clients do that cause I don't do much design work. Um, a lot of my clients do the design work themselves or contract it out. And so they'll, some of them will throw it in Dropbox. I've actually had a few of them send me like the final versions and then I actually will throw it in the Git repository because it's not going to be edited. It's not going to cause a lot of churn. Um, one thing I've had a problem with is if a client takes all this and like they upload it to the project management system because then you end up with a whole bunch of things attached to issues and then like, okay, is this the final one over here? Or is this the final one over here? And so um, I think Dropbox would be a really like a really good solution for that because you always have the latest and then you can just do, I think you can do like a, a link from another website to the actual, the, the actual Dropbox file. Because I've, I've looked at that, like you can make links now. So that's probably what I'm going to start doing. But yeah, most of the time I just wait for the final versions and those are the ones I use. Yep. Yep, exactly. So uh, yeah, and any other any other type of, of sharing or information that you want to discuss? Um, there's one, it's basically when the project is closed out and wrapped up. I talked a little bit about it, but like the final documentation. Um, I've had to do that for all of my clients uh, two months ago when I went on paternity leave just to like, hey, I'm done, I'll be coming back, but in case you need to get to it or you need to let someone else in, here's all the docs for it. And so for some cases, I used a wiki for that. In other cases, it was just an email because there wasn't as much documentation needed. Um, but typically, I try to close out a project by giving them everything they need to give to another developer to get started from like, this person knows Rails to, okay, they understand the project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, um, I don't think there's anything else. So I'm going to go ahead and move over to picks. So what are your picks? Okay, so uh, my first pick, this is actually from one of Jeff's newsletters. I thought it was pretty relevant. It's uh, seven items freelancers should back up, but they probably don't. It's from Gorilla Freelancing. Um, they, there's a couple things in here that we talked about, like client contracts, but it also talks about if you have newsletter lists or phone contacts of them, you want to make sure you back it up and you probably will want to back it up in a way you can get to it. You know, like having an XML file of all your phone numbers for your clients, probably not going to help you on your iPhone. So you probably want to get a backup into your address book or something. Right. And then the second pick is uh, an article I read on the Wall Street Journal. It's basically titled, Are You As Busy As You Think? Um, it's interesting because it talks about how everyone says they're extremely busy. They're on 24 hours a day so tired, I don't have any time, all that. Um, and I like the way that it's ended. It's basically, instead of saying you don't have the time for things, you basically say it's not a priority. So you can say like, uh, I'm not going to ed edit your resume because it's not a priority. Or I'm not going to go to the doctor because my health is not a priority. So it kind of it kind of changes the words around and makes you really think about it. Not as you don't have time, it's not a priority. You're not making time for it. Um, I've been actually thinking about that with a lot of things and it's, it's really made me look at what I'm doing a bit differently. Yep. Yeah. I like that. Um, cool. So 
Um, my picks, the first pick is um, I went to the downtown Ruby users group. Um, it's it's part of the Utah Ruby users group. It's just the downtown chapter, which has been around for like two months. The nice thing is, is they actually do the meetings on Wednesday nights, which means I can go. Um, but anyway, um, one thing that they were showing off, and this is something that I am definitely going to set up, is this thing called party party chat. And uh, basically it sits on top of um, Google Talk and uh, you can use it over, you know, any X, XMPP or Jabber client. And, uh, you know, it sets up a room so that you can um, share uh, the information and stuff like that. It runs on Google App Engines and I guess it's pretty fast. But the thing that really sold me on it was that you can use Hubot in there, which is the, um, the bot that GitHub uses in their campfire chat. Now, I'm not a huge fan of campfire, but I am, um, I, I, I do like the idea of having something like Hubot. It was something that when I worked at Mosey, they had an IRC, uh, server that was in there, uh, it was in the office. And so you could, you could join the, the different rooms and be involved. And they had, we, they had bots that uh, gave you different status updates on the system and things like that. And, um, and so this is something that's really appealing to me, especially with some of the projects I'm working on now where I have subcontractors. Um, it would be really nice to just pull the, um, maybe the, um, the person that I'm working with at the client in, um, pull the subcontractors in that are working on the project and then have Hubot in there. And so Hubot is then saying, um, you know, so-and-so pushed this up or so-and-so closed this, um, this story in Pivotal or, um, so-and-so delivered this, somebody just pushed to Heroku, um, somebody just pushed to the, the server, you know, whatever the situation is and just keeps them apprised of things. Somebody breaks the build, then it tells them that they broke the build, you know, all of, all of that, uh, it, it just seems like a win for me. So, um, I'm, I'm really kind of excited about what, um, what this offers. And so I'm probably going to jump in and, uh, give it a try. And so I'll be setting it up for, for a couple of the projects that I've been working on. But, uh, yeah, so those are, those are my picks, Hubot and party chat. Cool. I mean, and that's kind of what we talked about, about, you know, if you can automate some processes, I mean, instead of asking like, when was this closed and you have to look, oh, do it, look it up manually, if Hubot can do it for you or any other script, you know, it's a lot easier. Yeah. The other thing that, that I liked, the, the guy that was showing it off up at the meeting, he actually has it set up so that um, Hubot gets the Git hook from GitHub. And so then it goes ahead and deploys to the staging or to production for you. Um, so if you push to master, then it deploys to production. If, it, if you push to, um, to development, then it deploys to staging, um, and it tells you about it and, uh, you know, hooks into all the other stuff that they've got going on. So you can also give it commands to actually deploy. So you can say Hubot, you know, deploy, uh, production and then it'll deploy to production. So anyway, um, I guess we'll wrap this up. Um, uh, thanks for coming, Eric. Yeah. I think we had a good discussion. I, I really uh, hope this helps some folks out. Um, and hopefully Evan and Jeff can uh, be with us next week. 